listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Baking podcast. It's Michelle here. And let me start today's episode with an apology, which not my usual style. Generally speaking, I don't apologize for pretty much anything I do unless I've truly hurt someone. But in this case, I owe you guys a little bit of an apology. For those of you who have been longtime listeners of the podcast, you know that a new episode comes out every two weeks, pretty much like clockwork until the end of the year. And I usually finish the podcast up sometime around November. And then I start up again, usually kind of February, March. And I've done that for three years now. And the way that I make that happen is that I employ some efficiencies in creating podcast episodes well ahead of time so that I'm not kind of scrambling to get them done. And at the time that that would normally happen for all the October and couple of November episodes, life went a little bit crazy. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But so as a result, I've actually missed two episodes of the season, which normally would have aired in October before I did this episode. But it didn't happen. So I ask your forgiveness. I tell you that I'm back and happy to be back. But I will also mention that today's episode is the last episode of the 2019 season. And I will be back again in 2020 to keep you entertained and amused and hopefully teach you something. And I will be absolutely back in 2020 with a full season ahead. So that's going to be amazing. So my apologies for letting October's episodes fall by the wayside. Sometimes life just happens. And as you know, I like to be very real about the life that I lead and the life that I think other people should lead. And I think that one of those principles in living a good life is understanding that sometimes life just happens and you can't be perfect all the time. And, you know, sometimes life just gets in the way, really, is all I have to say about that. So my apologies. I know you still love me. I certainly still love you for being faithful and kind. And this is going to be the last episode of season three, 2019. So last year, I did an episode where I finished the year by talking about all the lessons that I had learned in 2018. And I thought that's probably a pretty good way to end this year's podcast episodes as well. I've had an unbelievable time doing this podcast. I have to say it's great fun. It's great pleasure to me to get to do these. And I get these wonderful emails from people all over the world who say that I keep them company while they're mixing buttercream, or I keep them company while they're waiting in the pickup line for their kids, or I keep them company while they can't sleep at night or while they're answering emails. And I just think it's really cool that I get to be a part of people's lives and their daily lives in all sorts of different ways. So whether you're listening to me in your car, in your kitchen, or in your headphones as you go for your walk, thank you for being part of the podcast and thank you for being a part of my life. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into the lessons that I learned from 2019. And let me just preface this by saying that this has been 
in some ways the most terrible year I can remember and in other ways the more most wonderful year that I can remember. Terrible because I had a pretty terrible depressive, I guess you would call it, episode that lasted for about a solid six months. I really, really struggled the first probably two-thirds of this year actually. I had a really, really rough time. I was going through a separation. My kids are growing up, which to some people might not be a big deal, but because they're triplets, I very keenly feel the passing of time and I very deeply feel the bittersweetness of knowing that I'm so proud of them for growing up, but I'm so kind of sad that they're growing up and I can't keep them in a beautiful glass jar and be like, babies, you're never allowed to grow up because <laughs> mom said so. So it's been emotionally a really difficult year. Personally, it's been a difficult year as I navigated both a separation and falling in love, which <laughs> let me tell you, doing both of those at the same time is quite an interesting experience. And professionally, it's been really interesting too. Because while I absolutely love the business of baking and everything I've managed to achieve with it, the industry has changed a lot. Something I've been pretty vocal about, actually. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And it's really made me re-examine what part I have to play in this industry and whether or not I would like to continue playing a part in this industry. So professionally... I went through a little bit of a watershed moment as well. So that's why I say it's kind of been a really awful year, but kind of been a really wonderful year. And ironically, or maybe not ironically, depending on how you look at these things, at the end of the year, I pick a word of the year for the coming year. It's a concept I learned from Christine Kane. So if you want to Google it and her, you can. I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but I believe in having a focus point or a focal word that kind of defines your year. And the word that I picked last year for 2019 was phoenix, like the phoenix rising mythical creature. And, you know, images of the phoenix are all about this beautiful bird rising up from the ashes of its previous incarnation or whatever. But it's kind of a interesting juxtaposition because it's this beautiful bird with these beautiful wings and at its feet are its old life and flames and kind of negative things. And so in retrospect, maybe Phoenix, I saw it as a symbol of strength and a symbol of rebirth and a symbol of growth. But the part I forgot is that in order for that to happen, the Phoenix has to say goodbye to a whole lot of things and move on from a whole lot of things and essentially let go of a whole lot of things. And so it makes perfect sense to me that in my year of the Phoenix, I've had the most amazing year and in some ways the most horrible year. So I think it's fair to say that all the lessons I learned this year come from that kind of double-sided experience of being so happy and in love and excited about my future and yet having to say goodbye to my children being babies and to what's been an amazing relationship with my husband I don't know that you would be curious, but in case you are, it's very amicable and we remain very, very good friends and it was not terrible at all. We just moved on with our lives, really. He's still very much a part of my life. And so it's kind of funny to say goodbye to someone and say hello to someone else all at the same time. It's been an interesting experience. So let's get started with the lessons that I learned from this terrible year. Now, I don't mean for this to be the most egocentric podcast episode that ever was. It's all about me. So I know I'm sharing these things with you because I think if I live through these lessons and I learned them, then maybe in sharing them, I can also make it a situation where you guys have something to learn as well and that you experience, you know, if you've had something similar happen to you or even if you haven't, I think there's always a lesson to be learned. And so I'm sharing these in the hopes that the lessons I learned will speak to you on some level and you will also feel like, you know, perhaps you learned something as well. So the first one is 
and by the way, some of these might be iterations of things you've heard me say before. And that's the thing about lessons. I don't think you necessarily learn them and you're done. I think sometimes you relearn them over and over. I often like to say, sometimes you need the universe to hit you across the face with a two by four a couple of times before you get the point. (laughs) So that's kind of a reflection of my lessons this year. So the first one is to trust your instincts. Now, I mean this from a health point of view and a mental health point of view. So when I fell into this kind of depressive black hole in the beginning part of the year, it was for me pretty bad. So that what that means is that other people would have thought that I was functioning, but for me, I was not functioning in the way that I like to function. And I was having a really, really hard time. So what does a hard time for Michelle looks like? That means that I wanted to sleep more than I wanted to do anything else. I had whole days where I had a big long list to-do list as long as my arm. And I would just lay in bed and go, yeah, don't really want to, thanks. There were days where I would only get out of bed because I knew the children were coming home from school and I had to be awake and perky and, and alive for them. I also knew that I was not in a good place because I was not spending much time with my friends and I am mostly extroverted, although I think these days more ambivert. And my friends knew something was wrong because I kept getting these texts that say things like, you're really quiet. Is everything okay? So for somebody as talky and out there as me, you know things are bad when I'm not talking. In fact, I revert into myself and I kind of crawl into my own little personal hole. So when I say that the first lesson is to trust your gut, It was an interesting experience because the few people that I let in and I said, I'm really not doing okay. I feel really depressed. I feel really sad. I feel very bleak. I feel this, that, and the other. They would all come to me with the same answer and they'd say, look, Michelle, you've got a lot going on in your life. You know, you've got the children growing up. You've got the separation happening. You've got this, you've got that, you've got the other. And people would sort of blame my sadness on all these things. Now, to be fair, those are all dramatic, sad life events, difficult things to go through. But I would listen to these people say, you have so much going on. You have so much happening. And I would think, yeah, I do. But none of those are all that terrible. Like, I'm excited the kids are growing up. I'm sad about the separation, but I'm excited about the new opportunities. Recently met somebody and I'm in love. I mean, like, and yet repeatedly people kept saying, this is what's going on. It's just really hard, Michelle. This is what's going on. You just have to deal with it. You know what? This is a lot on your plate. But what bothered me about this is I kept thinking, yeah, all those things are big, fat life events, but none of those things are enough to make me feel this crappy. And I found myself not wanting to talk to anybody about what was going on eventually because I was like, you know what? They're just going to tell me, oh, you have a lot going on, Michelle. And that wasn't what was going on. Now, to be fair, I didn't know for myself what was going on. But I also knew that all these people telling me it's this and it's that and the other, I knew that they were dead wrong. And so the lesson I learned here is simply because other people are telling you this is your problem, that doesn't actually mean this is your problem. And I have to tell you that this is going to sound, you know, it's not going to sound crazy because it's true. I was sitting at my desk one day and I was staring at the screen and thinking to myself, I just don't want to work. And in my head, I asked myself, okay, Michelle, why is that? You love working. You're a workaholic. If you could work all the time, you would. You love what you do. So why don't you want to work? And the voice that came back was my own. And she said, I'm just really bored. It sounds so anticlimactic, right? I'm just really bored. And I was like, bored? Yeah, God, you know what? I am really bored. (music) 
And I started to think about what had happened in those six months or in that year since that whole depression set in. Now let's look at my life the year before. The year before I was teaching all over the world. I'd taught 10 or so classes all over the world. I had loads of coaching clients who I was meeting with every week. I was working both for myself and the nonprofit and the nonprofit had a conference which took up like ridiculous amounts of time and excitement. I had been, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff socially. I had been to a bajillion festivals. I'd gone to all these movies. I went to all these crazy concerts. I led an insanely crazy, big, full, huge life, which involved a lot of work, but also a lot of travel and a lot of adventures. And this year, I promised the children that I wouldn't travel because it's their 12th grade year and they asked me to stay home. And I had purposely quietened down the business of baking as a result of that to give me time to focus on them. So there I was in like May, June going, I'm really bored. Why am I bored? And I thought, because last year I had this insane, crazy, huge, involved life. And this year, I'm a stay-at-home mom who stayed home single mom because my ex-husband had moved to another state for an amazing work opportunity. So all of a sudden, my world went from being booking flights, going places, meeting students, connecting with people on, you know, everywhere, LinkedIn, Skype, WhatsApp, whatever, to suddenly being at home in one place, no travel plans needed making, no teaching plans needing making. I had wound down the business, not entirely, but I just wound it back rather, not down, but back. And all of a sudden, I was like, so I've got nothing to do but basically record a couple of podcast episodes, write a couple of blog posts, and that's it. I'm home every night. I don't go out on the weekends anymore. I'm just doing this, and this is not the life I'm used to. Now, that probably sounds really privileged to you, but I had spent all this time and effort building up this crazy, amazing, independent life. And suddenly I didn't have any of those things. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't teaching. I wasn't going out. I wasn't doing a million things. I was just looking after my kids. And while that is an incredibly honorable thing, and I was really happy and proud to be doing that, my world went from being a globe worth to suddenly being as big as my house. And my whole world had shrunk to this tiny, tiny, tiny little space. And I realized that was really boring. And for me, boredom results often in self-destructive behavior. So I will eat shit I shouldn't eat. And I, you know, this basically become a hermit, really. Boredom for me is one of my major reasons for emotional eating and a bunch of other stuff. I go looking for trouble where I don't really need it. Or I create trouble where I don't really need it because I'm talented that way. And I realized sitting there at my desk, like, all this depression and feeling awful and being stuck at home and whatever is not about the fact that I have a lot going on. It's about the fact that I'm bored. I don't see my friends. I don't go out and do stuff. I don't travel. I don't teach. All the stuff that brings me mental and emotional stimulation is gone. And that's why I feel so awful. And so the end result for me was once I had that aha moment, and this is, by the way, after months of going like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know? I actually literally stood up like that very day and I was like, oh my God, I need to solve this problem. 
like I need to solve this problem. So I started looking for other opportunities professionally. I started looking for other opportunities personally. I started going out with my friends again. Now I don't have the level I had, you know, last year, but I've reached a point now where I'm not bored anymore. I got plenty of things keeping me busy. I've got enough of a social life that the children don't feel neglected, but that I feel like I'm getting some social stimulation. And life since then has been immeasurably better. But had I just listened to all those people saying, it's just that you've got a lot going on, Michelle, I don't know that I would be the happy, fulfilled person that I am now. I really don't. So lesson number one, if your gut is telling you that something is wrong other than what people are saying, or if that doctor is telling you, oh, it's just an ear infection, but you know there's something else going on, see if you can tune into that voice and see if you can figure out what's really going on. Because if I'd bought the excuse of, oh, it's just a lot happening, I honestly think that I would still be in that depressive place today. Once I was able to identify for myself what the problem was, then I could go about fixing it. And so listen to yourself. You know you best, right? So the second lesson I have for you is something that I've talked about a lot in business, which is that consistency will always trump, you know, one hit wonders for lack of a better word. And one of the things that I tried to stick to as much as I reasonably could, given that sometimes I just was stuck in bed, was walking pretty much every day. And I walk almost every day for an hour a day. And I say almost because I don't make it. I'm on a perfect track record. Pretty close, but not quite. Sometimes the weather's bad. Sometimes I just couldn't get out of bed. Sometimes whatever. And I got to a point where I would force myself to get out of the house because if, you know, when you feel like going for a walk, that's great. You're like, yay, look at me. I'm wearing my like cute exercise clothes and I have my earphones in and it's all great. Sometimes you just don't want to go. So I found myself in a situation where I wouldn't want to go. And I would think to myself, you know, Michelle, you tell your students all day long, sometimes the best you can do is put one foot in front of the other. And I took that cliched advice extremely literally. And I would tell myself, if you can just put one foot in front of the other, you're going to feel better. And I would force myself out the door a lot of mornings. These days, it's not forcing anymore but I'd force myself out the door really, really often and just go. And I would go for that walk. And there is something so life-affirmingly magical about breathing fresh air and seeing the leaves change color and seeing other people who like kind of nod at you and go like, morning, you know, and just the act of putting one foot in front of the other in a literal sense really, really helped me to put one foot in front of the other in an emotional and personal sense. I don't think exercise is necessarily the answer to all evils, but I think that it can solve a whole lot of problems. And by the way, there were some days where I'd only get as far as the park at the end of my street, which is literally, I think, a 10 second walk. Well, okay, maybe 15. And there's a park bench there under a tree. And some days I would just walk as far as the park and I would sit on that bench and I would just sit there and do a meditation or I'd stare out onto the grass in front of me or I would just breathe deeply for a few minutes and then I would walk home right? Necessarily get my cardiovascular exercise for the day, but being outside and getting in touch with nature and breathing is something that's really just essential, I think, to life really. And one of the things I found out, I didn't have anxiety. It was because I didn't feel anxious about things or worried about things. I was more just tired on a deep soul level. But one of the things when I've had kind of in the past anxiety or worry type moments where I start thinking in circles, 
I often feel as though I can't breathe. Now, of course, I can breathe because I would say to people, I feel like I can't breathe. And if you say you feel like you can't breathe, then you have enough breath to talk. You probably can breathe. But I found that on the odd day when I would feel like that, like I feel like I can't breathe. I actually think that sometimes that feeling like you can't breathe is about environment. It's about the actual literal walls around you. And so on days when I felt like that, if I would get outside and I'd sit on that park bench and I would just breathe for a few minutes, it's as though sitting in a wide open space, the awareness that there was atmosphere and air around me, it's as though that made me able to breathe because I was no longer in the confines of my office or the confines of my house or the confines of my thoughts, to be honest. So lesson number two, consistently forcing yourself outside in whatever way possible is possibly the best medicine you will ever get. Now, if exercise isn't your thing, then eat breakfast on the porch, sit on your front step and have a cup of tea, whatever, just get out. Because getting out makes a huge, huge difference to how you see the world and how you see your own troubles. They go from very big to very small when your space goes from very small to very big. One thing I learned this year is that the, yeah, I'm kind of changing tax here. Just stay with me, you know? I have like conversational ADHD, that's how this works. One of the things I learned this year is that our industry has leveled out immensely. Now, there are some areas in which there, I still see some growth. There's some pretty cool things being invented, some cool products. There's some people who are selling some really interesting things. But as an industry, I think we've leveled out a lot. When I first entered into the baking industry, you know, however long ago that was, I don't remember now, Long time ago, nobody was doing it. And then suddenly, thanks to Buddy and Duff and all those other TV guys, everybody was doing it. And we rode this unbelievable high for quite a number of years there where people were like, cupcakes are a fad. And yet there are still cupcake companies out there, you know, or drip cakes are a fad, but then still drip cakes being sold. And I think probably about four and a half, five years, we have ridden this unbelievable wave of cake being the new black, right? There are so many cake competition shows now. It's unbelievable. I feel like you bump into somebody in the street and they're like, oh, did you know I was on, you know, Cake Wars, Halloween, whatever, 19, 2017, whatever. So I think we rode an unbelievable wave, but I think in the last year to 18 months, I think that the industry has leveled out enormously. So what does that mean? I think that means that far fewer people are entering into the market. I think the number of new people discovering cake has slowed down considerably. Still lots of people coming in. I just don't think it's at the crazy rates that there were. I think we've now seen a generation of bakers and cakers and makers who have returned to either their old careers or to new careers, but who have chosen to leave the industry. It's not that they quit or gave up. It's just that they enjoyed it for a while and they're done now. It's a hobby like any other. I think from a product point of view, there's still some innovation and some interesting things going on, but certainly not at the rate there once was. I feel like now tools, rather than being innovative, tools have become, I don't know, I want to say like a crutch in a way. So I think the product that irritates me the most, and with apologies to whoever it is that invented this, I recently saw a silicon mold for a drip. Like you literally put, I guess, fondant, chocolate, I don't even know what, modeling chocolate, into a mold that looks like a drip on a drip cake. And I thought, how low have we sunk here? And I realized that might be a controversial point of view, but if we cannot figure out how to run some icing or chocolate or I don't know what down the side of a cake, and we feel that we need a level of consistency that requires a mold for that, yeah, for me, that's one step too far. So to me, that's also not innovation. That's just encouraging laziness. And so I can't come to terms with the drip mold. 
Sorry. I think moles in general are pretty cool. The drip mole just, yeah, no, <laughs> cannot do. But I think that's a reflection of the fact that people have understood that what we do is hard, right? And so the reasoning behind a mold like that is obviously you get a consistent product every time. It makes it much easier. You don't have to experiment with what works and what doesn't work for you. You just know it's going to work every time. So I understand the kind of benefits of that kind of product. But to me, I think that it's just a reflection of people have realized that what we do is not easy. You can't just come in, do it, and you're good to go. It's something that requires skill and education and time and trial and error. And we don't want to do that. And I think that as an industry, we're getting a little lazier, which I didn't think possible, but apparently it is. I've also learned that while the industry is leveling out, it's definitely harder than it was when I started out. So when I started out, caking was not a thing. Then it became a huge thing. And now it's still a thing, a bit bigger of a thing. <laughs> so that's my very unscientific way of saying, I think it's leveled out. I don't think that we have necessarily, I think it's probably still more prominent than it was before this all happened, before all these crazy TV shows happened. But I don't think that it's going to experience the same sort of insane growth that it has before. And I think in the next couple of years, this will continue to level out. So the number of classes that I see available, the number of teachers I see doing international stuff, the number of products that I see coming out, those have all slowed down considerably. I don't think we're going to die, people. I think it's, we're going to carry on. But I think it's just that we're seeing a leveling out. And I think that with that, we are losing a little bit of our creativity. I think we're losing a little bit of the envelope pushing we used to do. I think we're losing a little bit of care factor as well. So that's, I guess, I don't know that that's necessarily a lesson that I've learned this year, but it's an observation that I've seen this year, which is I think that the baking industry in some ways has slowed down. There are, by the way, sectors of that industry which are absolutely unfreaking believably artistic. And I'm specifically chatting to you, my cookie friends. I think that the people who are in the cookie space are doing unbelievably creative work. And they are probably the ones that I think are innovating the most out of anybody at the moment in terms of baked things anyway, because I've seen some unbelievably beautiful work that has come out of that sector of baking. And I think it's gorgeous, but generally I think we're leveling out. The other lesson that I learned this year is that you shouldn't let other people's judgment force you to make changes. So what does that mean? When I was going through that period where everybody was telling me what they thought was wrong with my life and I didn't agree with them, along with it came a whole lot of well-meaning but somewhat irritating advice. Oh, you should do this. Oh, you should do that. Oh, you should do the other. And it made me doubt my life choices a lot. Like it made me really kind of go, wait, should I be doing that? Should I not be doing that? What the? Maybe I should change this. But it's not that I felt there was anything wrong with my life. It's that other people felt there were things wrong with my life. So as I speak to you today, I currently work in five different roles. And to the average person, that sounds somewhat insane. I literally have five part-time jobs, one of those being Bob. By the way, that is slowing down. In the new year, it's going to four, but for right now, it's five. When I tell people about that, like, oh, I work for myself, and oh, I work for a nonprofit, and oh, I do this, and oh, I help my friend with a startup, and <laughs> they often say to me, you are absolutely crazy. That's insane. Why would you do that to yourself? Or and one of my closest friends who went, can't you just get one job? <laughs> Why do you have to have four or five? 
And I have to tell you, he pissed me off when he said that immensely. But what I've realized is that like, I really like this kind of chaotic world. I love the fact that I can help different people in different sectors. I love the fact that each one of those roles is a part of my life that's important to me, but a different part of my life, you know? I love the fact that no two days are ever the same for me. I love the fact that I have so many different colleagues now and students now and friends now. And I have parts of my life which are truly fulfilling and incredible. And is it sometimes a little chaotic and a little overwhelming? Yes, but I love it. And if I had to work a normal nine to five Monday to Friday job, to be honest, I think I'd hate it. I truly think I'd hate it. I love this kind of crazy piecemeal life when on any given day I might be working one job or I might be working three. I truly love the chaos. But if I let other people's judgment of that change how I live, then I'm living my life on somebody else's rules, not my own. And that's terrible. And I never want to do that. But it's been hard not to give in to their judgment of my life. And so the lesson is that don't let other people's judgment force you to make changes you don't want to make. I could have listened to all these people who were like, why don't you just do one thing, Michelle, and done that one thing and then been honestly pretty freaking miserable. And I don't want that to be my life. So when I say your life, your rules, this is an example of that where to the outside world, maybe my life looks crazy and chaotic and I have all these competing priorities and I have only 24 hours in a day. But to me, this controlled chaos is also joyful and soul fulfilling and exciting and fun and gives me exposure to so many people and things that I wouldn't have if I just had a normal job. Now, I'm not knocking normal jobs. If that's your thing, great. But it's not my thing and that's totally okay. So I recently had a coaching chat with somebody who was like, so I do this and I do that and I do the other and I do this, this, and they all sell really well. And I said, okay, great. So what's the problem? She said, oh, people keep telling me that I shouldn't make cookies anymore. Like, well, do you like making cookies? Yep. Does it make you money? Yep. Do you think you should stop making cookies? No, not really. Okay. So sorry, why are you going to stop again? Oh, well, because my mother, father, sister, brother thinks I should. Yeah. Seriously, your life your rules. And I will repeat that until the cows come home. Other people's judgment of how you choose to run your life is not a reason to change it. Might be a reason to question it and just check in with yourself that this is what you truly want. But once you're sure what you truly want, then it's time to stop being changed by other people's judgments. Lesson number five, I think we're on number five, is that people are forgiving so in those very black months, I didn't produce a lot of newsletters. In fact, I don't think I even wrote a single blog post. I definitely didn't call my mother or sister often enough. And as I said, I kind of went into this own little black hole of my very own. And so as a result, I wasn't seeing my friends as much. I was not participating in my Facebook groups as much. Yeah, I was spending a lot of time hanging out in bed playing stupid games on my phone. So yeah, kind of escaped from reality there for a while. Oh, I felt I was escaping for reality. It wasn't really. Reality was still very much knocking on my door. And so what I would do is I would feel terrible about the fact that I had let all these people down. You know, if I eventually managed to, I would post or I would call or I'd produce something or whatever. And I'd always kind of be like, I'm so sorry. These horrible things happen. Please, please, please. I feel really bad. You must think I'm the worst this or the worst that or the worst the other. And I went through this period of being horribly apologetic and basically feeling like the worst human being on earth. And not a single person thought there was anything wrong. As in, they were like, okay, that's cool. No problem, Michelle. I get it. Okay, life happens. Don't stress. 
I couldn't believe how amazingly, beautifully forgiving everybody in my life was. My students, the people who just read my newsletter, my friends, my family, colleagues. I have a colleague at the nonprofit and I remember calling him and saying, I know I said I would do all those things. I just couldn't do it. And I know you were waiting on me and I know there's a deadline. And he said, you know what, Michelle, it's okay. I get it. Sometimes things just get hard. And it was truly one of the nicest, kindest, most loving things. He didn't demand anything. He didn't yell at me. And he said to me, no problem that you couldn't done. He said, seriously, don't worry about it. When do you think it'll get done? And I said, oh, I think I'll manage it by next week. And he said, okay, no problem. And if that's not possible, you just let me know. So people are more forgiving than you think. And the reaction that you have invented in your head is often not the reaction you're actually going to get. So give people the opportunity to forgive you because they probably will. It's okay if you drop the ball. It's really okay. Happens to all of us, right? So the lesson that I learned is not just that people are forgiving. The lesson I also learned is that in my head, they're not forgiving, but in reality, they are. So rather than worry about what people's reactions might be, when I feel like I have to disappoint them and say, hey, I didn't do that thing. I didn't get that done. I didn't make that phone call. Instead, I just present them with the facts and I wait. And 100% of the time so far, people have been incredibly forgiving. Thank you, actually, for also being forgiving about the fact that I haven't, didn't do those two October episodes. I didn't do them and I didn't feel bad about it. I felt a little guilty, but I didn't feel bad because I was like, you know what? They're going to forgive me. And while no, I can't really ask every single one of you, do you forgive me? The truth of the matter is that people's lives carry on without us, which is a horrible thing to even think about, really. But the truth is, while there probably are some people who noticed that I was two episodes short, Are any of you not going to wake up tomorrow morning? Is the sun not going to shine tomorrow morning? It's a pretty forgivable offense. So give people the opportunity to forgive you. Don't create a story in your head where you're unforgivable. Lesson number six, manifesting works. So earlier in my career, I used to talk a lot about a course that I did with a woman named Denise Duffield-Thomas. She runs a course called Money Bootcamp, and she teaches law of attraction and manifestation and all this kind of stuff a lot. Look, my attitude when I joined it was, I don't believe in any of this woo-woo rubbish. My attitude after I joined it was, woo-woo is not rubbish. My attitude these days is somewhere in the middle. I don't think woo-woo is rubbish at all. I don't necessarily think it's the answer to everything either. My general opinion on all things woo, (laughs) is that an expression? All things woo, is that if you believe it works for you, then it works. And also I believe in the possibility of it working. So I don't know if aliens exist. I believe they might. I don't know if ghosts exist. They might. I don't know if talking to the universe every night as I do works, but it might. And so for me, My belief system is very much rooted in like, I don't know if it works. I don't need to know if it works. I don't need to accept it or not accept it or think it's good or think it's bad. I simply believe in the possibility. So for people who believe in prayer, I don't know if prayer works. I don't need to believe it, not believe it, whatever. All I believe is that it's possible that it works and that's it. And so for me, manifesting things, which for those of you who are not familiar with that woo word means basically making stuff happen in your life. Lots of people believe you can manifest in different ways, right? And I'm not going to go through all of those. That's an episode for another day. But one of the manifesting things which seems to work for me, and so I'll share it, and I've shared it before, 
is writing down what you want and getting really clear about what it is you want in life. So I manifested my current partner by writing down the qualities I wanted in a future partner. By the way, I was really detailed, but not on the surface. So I didn't talk at all about what he would look like or any of that stuff. I talked about the values that he had. I talked about the things he would enjoy doing. I talked about his moral compass. I talked about how he would treat me. I talked about how we would feel when we were together. I talked about all kinds of things. I wrote this big long list. It is frightening how many of those he actually can tick the box for. And by the way, I was not actively dating or looking at the time. I also manifested one of my current roles. I told you that I'm working lots of roles at the moment. And I wanted one main one. And I was having no luck after like six months of looking. So I sat down and I made a list. What do I want in a job? I want this, 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 this. And again, none of it was surface. So there was a few details about like, I'd like to get paid this much and I'd like it to be this close to home. But there was a lot of detail stuff. I want a company that has morals like this. I want a company that believes in that. I want an environment where my work colleagues are like this. One of my more entertaining ones I had on there was, I want a job where I can go to work in jeans every day. By the way, I work for a company that now you can go to work in jeans every day. In fact, you can go to work in shorts if you want to. So I think that the thing that works is not just the manifestation part of writing it down and asking the universe for it, but becoming very, very, very clear on what it is you want. And the process of sitting and writing it down and working that out is what I actually think makes it happen. I think the magic is in the becoming real with yourself and saying to yourself, this is what I want to have happen. This is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm aiming for. And I think that once you become clear and you write it down, you naturally then gravitate towards those things. So I then started looking in industries other than my own for this job because I was like, wait, I don't think I'm going to find any of this in my, where I am now. Where else can I look? And I started purposely looking outside of my circle. And so I think manifestation works, but I think what works about it is writing it down. The particular method I like is writing it down and becoming really, really, really clear about what you want. Lesson number seven that I learned from this crazy, crazy year was that giving feels really good. And in many ways, giving takes you out of your black hole. So when I talk about giving, I don't just mean money, although that's good. I also mean time. I also mean love. I also mean energy. I mean giving in whatever way that you can give, which is really hard when you feel like you have nothing. But there are ways that you can give that honestly cost you very little. So when I'm talking about giving, I'm saying, you know, when a friend calls you up and says, I'm having a really hard time and you give them your time and you just listen to what they have to say. When your kids say, hey, mom, we have a study group on today and you bake them brownies, even though they didn't ask for it, that's giving. If you have a friend who's running a marathon for, you know, I don't know, some sort of charity and you sponsor each mile for 50 cents or something, that's also giving. And the thing that is ironic about giving when you are feeling like you have nothing to give is that it makes you realize that the world is bigger than you and your troubles. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, my world had gotten very small. I felt like I lived in this little tiny house-shaped egg, you know? And every time I would give, I'd realize that the world outside of me was pretty big and I had lots of other things going on. And giving whatever it is you can give feels amazing. So I had other friends going through tough stuff and they'd call me and say, Michelle, how are you? And I'd say, you know what? Uh, I'm okay. How are you? And that 10 minute, 20 minute, whatever it was phone call 
at the end of it, did I solve my life problems? Not even a bit, but I gave somebody else the gift of my time. And that gift is immeasurable both for them and for me, because for that 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour, I wasn't thinking about my troubles. I wasn't focusing on all the things I don't have. I was just giving with love. Giving when you feel you have nothing left to give is often one of the best ways to get back. So I learned that lesson many, many, many times over this year. Now, I'm not suggesting giving in that weird female way where we give, 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 and we become overgivers. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying that when you feel like you're in a dark, terrible place, sometimes doing something for somebody else helps get you out of that dark place, even if only for a short time. Lesson number eight is kind of related to that, which is to say that one of the things I learned this year, and I learned it in the most beautiful way, is that the greatest gifts often come from the worst circumstances, which is ironic because you're thinking everything sucks, my life sucks, this sucks, that sucks, I'm broke. Do you know what? You get great stuff out of that. The example I have immediately to mind is that my closest friend in high school was a guy that I absolutely adored as a friend. And he was a year older than I was and he went off to college and I like literally on orientation day, he met a girl and he fell in love with her and ended up marrying her. And he dumped my friendship pretty much that day. No, that week. (laughs) And we grew apart and it, it all kind of fell apart and I didn't hear from him for a really long time. We would occasionally like, you know, the odd random hello, but not really. We just kind of fell apart his friends. And I missed him terribly. And two years ago, he ended up getting divorced from his wife. And I don't even know why, but he reached out to me and was like, hey, Michelle, like, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm good. Like, you know, how are you kind of thing? And it was a very surface conversation. And that surface conversation led to another conversation, which led to another conversation, which led to another conversation. And he really needed somebody in his life who could listen without judgment, who could offer advice if he wanted it, who could offer love if he needed it, who could offer whatever. And out of this awful situation where he was barely kind of functioning, we built our friendship back. And he's now in my life, you know, pretty much every day or every other day even though he lives halfway across the world. And our friendship has been not only restored, but strengthened by this horrible experience he went through. And then subsequently, I went through the same thing not that long afterwards. And through our shared, you know, it's gonna sound funny, but like through our shared misery and our shared need for a friend, we had this beautiful, amazing experience together, which just resulted in us having an amazing friendship. And the really funny part about that is he has since repartnered and I have since repartnered, and now we have conversations about all kinds of much more interesting, entertaining, and very funny things. Like, where do you want to go? Where do you think I should go on date night with my girlfriend? And I'm like, what do you think about this sex thing? Or what do you think about that drinking thing? Or what do you think about, you know, should I get him this gift? Should I get her this gift? And we have each other to kind of like use as partner counselors for each other's new relationships. And just recently, literally like a week ago, I said to him, like, how did this happen? How did we go from having these lives where we were sad and crying and wondering how we were going to cope every day? All of a sudden, we have conversations about alcohol and drugs and 
sex and rock and roll. Like, how did that happen? And we just had such a good laugh. And it was just such an example of how sometimes the greatest gift can come out of the worst set of circumstances. So, and I've talked about that before and I've attributed, you know, my weight loss and my good health now to losing my dad. And that's another example of a great gift coming out of a terrible circumstance. So I think sometimes we just need to remember that the worst circumstances don't just give us terrible things. They sometimes give us really, really great gifts. Yeah. And along those same lines, not to get like too depressing on you or anything, but lesson number nine is that in a previous episode of this podcast, I talked about life being full of seasons, you know, the season of being tired, the season of running a business, the season of having to be a mother and put all your focus and energy there. But sometimes those seasons are terrible ones, right? Sometimes it's the seasons of pain and loss and loneliness or tiredness. Sometimes it's the season of having to do the things you don't want to do in order to get forward to where you want to go. The seasons are not always happy ones. Sometimes, you know, in the breakup of a relationship or in the loss of a a loved one or whatever, the season you are going to go through is the season of pain is the season of loneliness. I had a season of boredom, which again, I feel so a little ridiculous talking about that, but boredom for me is like a major life problem. How bloody ridiculous of me to be like, being bored is a problem. For me, it's a major life problem. So I guess the lesson I learned is that not all seasons are positive ones. Sometimes the seasons are pretty awful, dark seasons. But like the springtime, new seasons come again and things get better and you survive through it. And I definitely had the season of darkness earlier this year, which lasted far longer than I wanted it to. But the point is it was there and I just had to live through it until, you know, eventually the snow melted and the light turned on again and things were, you know, at least got a little bit better slowly and now are significantly better and I'm doing great. But it was the season of pain and loss and boredom and loneliness and all of those things. And you know what? I survived that, but I survived it in part by remembering this is what's happening to me right now. This is not what's happening to me forever. And I understand that people who suffer from clinical depression do have that feeling of forever. And I can only really speak as somebody who had an episode as opposed to a condition. But in that episode, part of what pulled me through is reminding myself that this is the season for that. You know, change is also really scary. So, you know, the season of change is another one that's quite terrifying for a lot of people to live through. And the last and final lesson is perhaps totally off the beaten track here. Should not be a great surprise to you. But the triplets turned 18 earlier this year. And ever since then, everybody's been telling me that once you turn 18, you should this, that, and the other. And people keep giving my parenting lots of shade, let's call it, because these kids are 18. So interestingly, people are like, oh, you still like make your kids lunch? Or what? I don't, by the way, but if I did, oh, well, but they're 18 now. Or they say, oh, well, that shouldn't matter. They're 18 now. Oh, you don't want to leave them home alone? But they're 18 now. I have heard the but they are 18 now sentence in every iteration you can possibly imagine. And it's driving me crazy. They did not wake up the morning of their 18th birthday, suddenly fully formed independent adults. They really didn't. They're still vulnerable. They're still young people. They still need their parents. They still need their friends. They still don't necessarily do things that we think adults, in air quotes, adults should do. And while that seems like a bit of a funny lesson to be sharing with you, the lesson I learned is that once again, other people's judgment 
is not an indication of how you should live your life or change your life. So all these people are like, oh, they're 18. They should just start paying for everything themselves now. With what money? Oh, they're 18. You should just this, this, this now. And oh, you still give them a ride to work. And oh, your kids still cut on you. And oh, you this, and, oh, you that. Do you know what world? 18 means nothing. When you were 18, you were just as stupid as you were when you were 17 and 364 days. You did not suddenly wake up intelligent. And so the lesson I learned here is I can't listen to society telling me that when you're 18, you should suddenly be this magical, mystical, independent creature. And I continued parenting my kids and continue to parent them to this day as they are, the maturity level they are, not indicative of the age they are. And I have met plenty of actual adults who are 20, 30, 40, 50, who are no more mature than my 18-year-olds. In fact, sometimes less. So... Well, that sounds like a bit of a funny lesson that, you know, just because you're 18 doesn't mean you're suddenly mature and adult. It also is a lesson to you to judge people on who they are, not how old they are or what you think they should be. So for anybody who wants to call me after this podcast and be like, you know, Michelle, those kids are 18 now. (laughs) Yes. And you clearly haven't worked out that age is nothing but a number. I certainly don't feel my age. It's nearly my birthday and I don't feel my age. So there you go. So those are my lessons that I learned in 2019. It's been a really big year. As I said, in some ways, amazing and wonderful to watch. And I have to say that on the kids' front, seeing them achieve and seeing them make plans for next year and hearing about all their adventures they want to have and the universities they want to go to is amazing. And so it's been a bittersweet year full of joy and love and happiness and excitement and achievement and fun. But the bitter part has been that it's also been a year of boredom and fear and loneliness and all sorts of other crazy emotions, loss and pain and whatever. But just like the phoenix, I am rising again. And you know what? I think it's totally okay to say goodbye to one thing and hello to another and to enjoy all the excitement and adventure that that brings with it. So let me simply say again, thank you so much for being both a part of my life personally and a part of my life professionally. It's been an absolute pleasure to come and chat to you every other week, except for that little bump in October, but let's not talk about that. And next year, the podcast will be back and I'll be talking to all kinds of interesting people. I've lined up some pretty cool interviews and I've got some great ideas for some solo shows. If you have enjoyed the podcast this year, I would so much appreciate you popping a review either on Google Podcasts or on any podcast listener device that you use, leave a review for me so that others know about it. And the best gift you can give me is really just to tell other people that the podcast exists and that you've enjoyed it. And the last thing I will say is that earlier this year, I opened up the learning store on thebizofbaking.com and that means that you can purchase all kinds of classes I've done, short ones about things like starting to teach cake decorating and how to conduct tastings and how to look high-end from home and longer ones like build your profitable cake business, which is like the mother load of all courses, which includes stuff about pricing, marketing, and everything else. And I've also reopened up my calendar to taking on some one-on-one mentoring clients. I love mentoring. So feel free to jump on there and grab a couple of sessions for yourself or for somebody you love because you know what? season of giving also means giving to yourself, right? So you can do that. And for those of you who are part-timers and who do this as a part-time side gig, I also have my class called sweetsidegig.com, which I run with the most amazing business bestie in the world, Sharon Wee. So there's lots of ways that you can hang out with me in between podcast seasons. You can get some mentoring from me. You can take a class with me. 
You can listen to a webinar I've done. You can do all sorts of stuff. And all that information can be found on thebizofbaking.com. There's plenty of links there to show you where you're going. Thank you for being amazing. Thank you for listening. And I'm looking forward to keeping you company in your car, in your kitchen, or on your walk next year in 2020. In the meantime, stay happy, safe, and well. And you know what? Your life, your rules, always. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.